0: is a Momentum Media production.
1: Nerd alert! Property Nerds, (laughs) the
0: home for data-driven property investors, where we uncover Australia's hot and cold markets, latest headlines and
1: trends. Welcome to another episode of the Property Nerds podcast. This is your host, Arjun Paliwal here. And I'm very, very excited for today's session. But before we go into today's episode, it's a very exciting time of the year because this time last year, or maybe a little bit earlier, around July, August, we released the first edition of our report, Housing Fundamentals Analysis in Australia. And there are a few interesting calls we made. The first call was that fundamentals were in fact very strong. Even in the midst of high rising interest rates, we called out 25 core housing fundamentals of which we said 17 were either strong or very strong. So the first thing you can do is you know understand that there were some that weren't strong, some were strong and some were very strong. We weren't here being absolute bears or absolute bulls. We were here to give a balanced assessment. And in that assessment we also then had a second part and third part and in that second part it was about core predictions, core predictions around you know price growth to be coming back, things around certain major markets to decline, and even predictions around which markets would be some of our best performers. Then from there, we had our market pressure analysis highlighting those that were in high pressure, somewhat high, balanced, and then also low. Now reflecting on that, we've been able to go back into the archives, not only talk about that market pressure analysis and the predictions we made, but actually also talk about this new year ahead of us and the fundamentals in place. Now spoiler alert. The fundamentals were that 16 of 25 fundamentals remained extremely strong or strong, or very strong, right? And so that's one less than last year, but still a very high number and a very strong number in the overall scheme of things. And we released our updated market pressure analysis combined with an actual scoring of how we went. Did we go okay? Did we not go okay? And there is some interesting data for you all to review. So if you'd like to understand how did we go in our predictions of market pressure, what fundamentals remain strong and very strong, what fundamentals go balance and what shifted to the weaker side, getting a full understanding of the demand, supply, confidence across 25 macro housing fundamentals, that research paper is now out and free to download. It's the second edition of our housing fundamentals. So please go do check that out if you'd like to A, recap predictions and B, know where we are. Now on the topic of market analysis and fundamentals, I've got someone very special joining me on today's show. And as you guys all know who are tuning in, guests are a rare appearance on the Property Nerds podcast because we like to keep things extremely selective and also make sure we're on brand with the the fellow nerds of the game, those who love property data just as much, if not more than we do. So you all can enjoy analysis and predictions and insights that are beyond just what we produce here at Investigate and the uh, Property Nerds space and to make sure that you get differing views, because it's not all about just my view or my thought, it's about the different ways that exist in reviewing data. So I've got a very renowned property analyst joining us, and I've got John Linderman here. So John Linderman is a very widely respected analyst and actually one of Australia's leading. Uh, He's got well over a decade of experience in property research and really has been someone who's been a go-to amongst many experts in the Australian housing market analysis space. Now, he's regularly featured across you know, Kevin Turner's Real Estate Talk. Uh, he's featured across various Australian property investor magazines and the Property Observer going back in time as well. And he's someone who's actually one of the only with an innovation patent in the housing market space. So back in 2016, John uh, was awarded an innovation patent for his invention of the housing market prediction solution which has been a solution that focuses on the prediction of suburb level price growth, price decline, price steadiness years into the future. And so John here joins me on the show, and he's someone who not only is a well-respected analyst, but puts his predictions out there. And Just to name a few, the Hobart prediction he made in 2016 around Hobart, could that be the next hotspot? It was a best performer in the years ahead. And for those who want to make sure they get their data right, it was a best performer pre-COVID boom. Many people think the hair is smaller city, and they go, "Oh, COVID boom did that. Well, that was pre-COVID boom, that it was a strong performer. The next thing was John actually on the month of COVID, not a few months following, not a year following, the month of COVID said, hey, hold on a minute. I know lockdowns are here, but it is not doom and gloom, and I'll tell you why. And that was uh, one of John's releases of information, and that was also proven to be successful. And in more recent times, John's continued to pave the way with his predictions around suburb data and, you know, having consistently picking some of the higher performer ones. So it's a privilege here to have uh, John on the show. John, welcome, my friend.
0: Thank you very much, uh, John, for that uh, wonderful introduction. And it's wonderful to be here because I guess I'm the ultimate property nerd. You know, I've been doing this for about 40 years, so um, I'm in the right place, I think.
1: Absolutely, I'm sure everyone's excited to you know tune in, not only tune in but rewind as well, and and really dig deep into this. And I I can't um, you know commend you enough on how much information you put out there, how free and open you are to you know sharing information and making sure people can have that opportunity to learn about what you see in the data space and some of the many fantastic research reports and releases that you do that goes into some of the the markets across across the country. But I thought it'd be great to start off with. A background, John, for the audience that may not have, you know, heard of yourself or yeah. uh, may not know about yourself. It'd be great to hear about, I guess, the passion for what you do. Um, I mean, your background and and what mission you're on for property investors specifically across Australia.
0: I'm happy to uh, to answer that. I, I started my investing journey probably well over forty years ago, and I was really lucky because the first house I bought it was a small terrace house in Hawthorne in Melbourne. That doubled in value over the next four years, and and I thought, wow, this is easy money. Property investing is the way to go. So I sold that one. We bought another one, and that market went nowhere at all over the next four years. Uh, prices actually declined, and um, we lost money on it. We had to sell, and we went you know backwards financially. And I thought, I've really got to figure out how the market works. You know what is going on here. So I read all the books I could find on property investing and went to boot camps and webinars, seminars, free events, paid boot camps. And I learned a lot, but nobody could actually tell me how the market worked and how investors could get the most benefit. So I finished my professional studies and I went to work with the Bureau of Statistics where I studied trend analysis, which is all about measuring trends of supply and demand. and they were using this in with commodities, gold, you know shares, and using trends to predict what was likely to happen. And I thought, well, why can't you do that with property? It's just another commodity, a little bit more complicated, but nevertheless, you should be able to figure out what the supply and demand indicators are and how to trend them. So, I um then left the ABS and I went to work at Residex for five years. I was the head of research there and that was when the GFC took place and a lot of the banks came to me and said, John, you know, we're worried because we think prices might actually fall, which they hadn't done, you know, for a long, long time. How do we know whether or not that's going to happen? So I then looked at the market more closely and worked out what were the main indicators that you could use to figure out Whether prices were likely to rise and fall and do that down to suburb level. And when I'd done that, I left Residex and set up my own company. That was 12 years ago. So I've been um, in charge of Property Power Partners for over 12 years. And that's purely what we do. We analyse the market and provide information, as you said, Arjun, services reports, which provide predictive information for investors.
1: Mm. And John, that rich level of experience from the ABS to the Residex and now even your own company for over a decade, I guess on that journey in making predictions and improving accuracy as time goes on, you would have also met many who failed to make many correct predictions and they often still get another opportunity, another time to make a word, another time to say something and their voice constantly comes onto the media and I'm hinting at some of our beloved economists that are out there, yeah. why do they constantly get it wrong, John? Because this well, is something that they just continue to get rolling again and again.
0: They look at the wrong numbers, and this is one of the, let's look at, the, for example, at the last three years, what's actually happened. When I look at the market, how the market was performing before the pandemic, say in about early 2020, and then what happened, we had a you know the fall in interest rates down to record lows, and it took about a year, and then suddenly the property market took off. The reason it took so long was because there was an excess of supply over demand, but once that was taken up, more people were going to the banks, the banks were willing to lend, they were willing to lend more, and so, of course, eventually property prices started rising. Then, you know, when the um, RBA started increasing interest rates, the opposite happened, and we had, you know, this massive number of Twelve interest rate rises in a row, which really knocked the stuffing out of the market. So we've had three years of very, very unusual situations. So we've had record low unemployment. Now we've got record number of overseas arrivals, record low new housing development, all of these things which are sort of pretty much unheard of, unprecedented, but the fundamentals stay the same. And that is why, you know, I was able to predict that boom would occur, but also that we're now back to where we were pretty much before the pandemic. If you look at the the way the housing market is performing now and the fact that interest rates have stabilized, I can see a period of, you know, solid growth ahead of us for the next few years.
1: And when you think of some of the mistakes, I've also noticed one John, and that's the isolation of data because alongside what you said there, there's a common theme amongst economists around the isolated data piece and throughout you've used words like fundamentals, you've used supply, you've used demand. There was never this one thing you kept sticking to. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. in the opposite view, which is economists, they pick out the one thing and they stick to it. Interest rates equal X or you know, bank defaults now equal Y. What's helped you in taking a step back and I guess realizing that housing is not as simple as one in one? It isn't, and I think the the main thing they get
0: wrong, and this this happened and it was a number of times with economists, they look at what they call unaffordability, and they say, oh, the market's become unaffordable. You know, Sydney can't go up because it's unaffordable. But what they're looking at is something that doesn't. No one actually goes out and buys a property for cash unless they're a downsizer, or they've sold the family home. Most people have to borrow money, and and first time buyers borrow nearly all of the money. They're not actually laying out that you know four, five, six hundred thousand for a property. Unaffordability is not measured in terms of the value of property, it should be measured in terms of, well, how easy is it to raise it up, how much deposit do I need, and then can I afford the repayments, how much will the bank lend me? So you know they're really looking at the wrong fundamentals, and that's why they get it wrong. But uh, when I look at the market, I see the the main dynamics are pretty much, people, that is population growth and movement. When people move into an area, they need housing and therefore that increases the demand for housing. But it could be rental or it could be people wanting to buy properties. So you then look at the next dynamic, which is the ability and the need for finance. Do they need finance? How much can they borrow? How much can, um, you know, are the banks willing to lend them? And the third one, is then the actual ratio of supply to demand. So you look at a particular area and say, well, at the moment, for example, I look at the Sydney market, all the the properties listed for sale and all the rental vacancies, and you can do this yourself, just look at the whole of Sydney or even New South Wales, just see what realestate.com tells you, how many there are, and then look at the population growth figures and you'll see, hang on, it doesn't add up. The demand for housing is exceeding the supply that we have.
1: Yeah. And John, when you look at these imbalances that we're seeing across the nation in smaller markets and larger markets, both in the supply-demand corridor, there's also people who, I guess, have seen the last few years of extraordinary growth in some of our regional areas. And as a result, they've bucketed and called it the COVID boom, as if in some way that They only grew during then and shall only grow due to the fundamentals of what occurred during COVID. To me, that seems flawed because that is not the truth. However, I'd love to hear it from you in your opinion of why we can't bucket regional markets like a COVID boom only thing and what to look forward for in some of regional Australia.
0: Yeah, I think that was a complete misnomer, You know, the the flight to regional markets and so on because of COVID. I don't think that happened. I, I did actually notice one thing in the last census. What we saw was the vacancies of holiday homes declined rapidly. In other words, people were that had holiday homes were escaping lockdowns by moving temporarily to their holiday homes in the country. But what really happened, and you look at the regional markets before COVID, there was starting to become you know, dramatic increases in demand and prices as a result. From downsizing older people, so what was happening was that people aged 55 plus, who form about a third of our population, were taking the opportunity to sell the family home, and you know they had no mortgage, so they were able to downsize and buy a property in a really nice, attractive regional coastal market, and that demand was starting to increase dramatically, and then COVID actually killed that off because people couldn't move and so the lockdowns in some cases meant they couldn't even leave home in, in Victoria and Melbourne, so that stopped. Now it's starting again, so it's got nothing to do with, you know, a COVID boom as such, it's actually the opposite. What we're seeing now is a return of growth to these regional markets and people are starting to, you know, take off where they was moving in where they left off during COVID. So I think that a lot of regional markets, especially the The popular ones with over, you know, over fifty fives. These are areas which have got huge growth potential, and they're one of the probably the best likely performing markets in Australia over the next few years.
1: Yeah, John, you've touched on a really key demographic area, right? Which is this over fifty fives group, and uh, also some of the household formation and demographic shifts occurring. I think these two will play a core part, no doubt. But one thing is going to be so confusing for the Less experienced analysts in the market. And that is, if I take you down to 2000 to 2005, we saw our last mega boom like it was like this across many locations. And often believed is that when growth occurs everywhere in most locations, it therefore means that the years ahead of growth must slow down. And there might be some truth to it in some areas, but there may not be some truth to another areas. And I guess. We're now in this interesting point where if we just say, for example, using Adelaide or Brisbane, and you look at the last three-year chart, for many, this is going to be mind-boggling to go, wait, so I'm going to buy a property here in a market that's done 60 70%. And so I guess using your prediction analysis, when you look at your experience in predicting up, I guess there's also the formulas on where might not go up. And so, when you think of the dynamic we're in today, where so much of the country's grown and people with the investor hat on like to avoid areas that have grown too much, typically, how do we bust that myth and say, well, this can still keep growing and it may do so? And maybe no, these parts of the myths, it's not a myth and it's actually true. Because I think there's very few markets around the country now, outside of maybe a few parts of regional Queensland, Perth, that have had a low 10 year cycle and they've all had some extraordinary growth. How does all your experience from the many life cycles of investing you've seen in the past now come to this time? Because you're one of those few people where you can say, ah, I've seen this before.
0: Yeah, I can remember distinctly 10 years of um, no price growth at all in Perth. Uh, That was from about um, the end of the mining boom period, 2013 or even earlier, 2012 that that market stalled, there were price falls, and then the market went nowhere for nearly 10 years. So, um, I did a presentation over in Perth about a year ago, and I said, guys, this market is about to boom, and they all sort of said, oh, you know, he's just an East Coaster, what does he know? But what I was doing was looking at the relationship between demand and supply, and in Perth for a long time, because there'd been no house price growth, there was very little housing, new housing development, but... The demand was still picking up every year, more people moving into Perth, more people wanting to own their own home. So the demand kept increasing, but the supply was stagnant. And so you get to this point where, what I call a tipping point, where the demand starts to exceed the supply. And when that happens, you start to get price growth occurring. It's what I predicted for Hobart in 2016, exactly the same fundamentals. There'd been no price growth there for over six years, but that relationship had changed. And that's really what you look at. It's not past performance. It really doesn't matter if Adelaide's gone up 60% in the last year or uh, Brisbane is now at record highs as well. What matters is what is that relationship of supply to demand? Because it could go up another 60% if that demand remains above the supply. It's that simple. And we really don't look so much at past performance. It's not an indicator of future growth at all.
1: Absolutely. This reminds me of March, April 2022. We jumped on the, the Weekend Today show and and people called me crazy. I got like 50 text messages afterwards when I went on the show and said, hey guys, Adelaide will have double digit growth in 2022. And this is after a few interest rate rises because I just couldn't see a shift of dynamics. I mean, supply was still 40% below pre-COVID averages. Rental vacancies was still one below 1% rents were rampantly rising construction was nowhere to be found and then on top of that sales volumes are still healthy vendor discounting was low i was just trying to find a story to go against it unemployment was low job ads are flying up and i just was trying yeah. to look for something to say please tell me i'm wrong here but i couldn't so you raise such a good point it's about the fundamentals sticking not just it has grown or it hasn't grown and therefore the picture has been and is continuing so John, from your side now, when you look at some of the core trends ahead, we've obviously now had stabilization of interest rates as one core macro trend, and many are here to say, including myself, that I think we overshot interest rates and inflation's showing the data, it's coming up and catching up. However, now we move into this new phase ahead of us where some fundamentals, as you said, remain, being low supply, being rampant population growth. What do you envision the next three years across many parts of Australia versus this last 12 months, because this last 12 months, as you said, has been shaky for some, but this next three years, and I choose three just because it seems like a a performance metric that everyone seems to want to be going well in, and why? I guess I'd love to know your thoughts there.
0: Um, well, I think the the main dynamic at the moment is the number of people coming into Australia. In the last financial year, it was uh, 525,000 people. That was a record. This financial year, it's going to be about 450. And when you look at the federal budget projections, you know it's over 400 for the next three years every year. Um, That's a huge number of people, and there just simply aren't enough properties for them to live in. But it's not just that. They all want to live in the same areas. So what we see in Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane... New arrivals, either renting units in inner urban areas or, or renting houses in the older, well-established suburbs that are not too expensive, and they do that for you know because they feel they might have ethnic reasons for living in certain areas where they feel more at home, or they might just be students wanting to live near universities and or near work the areas. The rent demand starts to escalate, and I can see that it's happening already. Massive shortage of properties, especially in those areas, so rents are starting to rise dramatically. And when it gets to a point where the where the rental yield, that is the return you're getting from a property in, in, uh, in rent, starts to become positive, then of course more investors want to buy properties in those areas, and that causes price growth because they're competing to buy properties. So that's where I see these markets heading in these sort of older inner urban areas, a lot of rent demand pressure on rents to rise, and um, of course that means that uh, as the yields go up, they're going to be more attractive, and more investors will return to property and buy properties in those areas for the cash flow. So I think that's going to be the main dynamic that um, will power our markets. The you know the especially the capital city markets for the next few years, and I think we'll see a return to a price growth. And quite strong price growth, in fact, uh, I've been predicting on, in April last year, I said I think we're on the cusp of another property market boom, and now you look in our know, Perth at record levels, Adelaide's at record levels, Brisbane property prices have never been higher, it's well and truly on its way. We've had six months of consecutive price growth, but when you look at rents, that's even more dramatic, so rents will be driving the next boom and I think it's um, going to happen in those particular urban areas but at the same time don't forget what I've been saying about 55 plus aged people moving to regional markets so you've got the you get a movement out from the upper socioeconomic areas and our capital cities to the regional markets at the same time so there's uh, a lot of growth opportunity if you look at the right areas
1: Yeah, John, in the whole rental space, it's interesting when you play around with a cash flow sheet and you dial up a few increases in rents, a few more stabilizations or potential declines of interest rates, and then you look at some cities that may be sleepers that might really start to come alive. And there was a barbecue, and I kid you not, it was an actual barbecue. I'm not just using the analogy. Uh, It was a barbecue conversation I had with someone on Melbourne, and I noticed some interesting trends, right? There was the eastern suburbs of Melbourne where you were seeing sort of 650 to 950k properties. And your rental yields for many that don't remember in, rent in Melbourne times were sort of that 2.5 to 3.25. A, they're tracking towards 3.5 to 3.8 now. So then I just did this thought. I said, hey, look, I'm not doing a deep dive here. I'm just having a chat. Just imagine if this would look attractive to someone in Melbourne. Rents go up at a similar pace for the next two, three years. And suddenly the yield on purchase is now over 4%. Interest rates come down, not saying crazy COVID money cheap 1.99 rates. I'm talking a stable 3.5% to 4.5% interest rate. And that's the end consumer rate. And then you're having the rates, water insurance, depreciation, uh, a bit of maintenance, property management, 20% deposits. And you're tracking to almost neutral cash flow now, or practically neutral, for a house in one of our, if not the largest city in the country, under a million dollars. And to me, that is going to catch people delayed, and then people will catch on to that. And that is exactly what you just spoke about, which was then people going, investors, rents, tenants joining the party, them not wanting to pay rents more. And when when could someone look back outside of the COVID cheap interest rate time and say Melbourne's positive cash flow. It's it's not it's not been like that, but it may become that in the next few years if these dynamics come into play, which is so interesting, right?
0: It is, and it, I mean it's happened in the past. We've we've seen uh, long periods of time where rents have been much higher comparatively than what they are now. Um, and usually when it's been periods of time when we've had high population growth, you know, overseas arrivals pushing up rents, and so I can see exactly the same thing occurring right now. But the other thing too is that that will lead, as rents keep rising and then people say after a few years, yeah, we want to buy our own property and interest rates are coming down. So you'll start to see more people uh, wanting to buy properties, you know, first-time buyers in the outer suburban areas. If you look at Melbourne, like Melton, Cranbourne, Pakenham, those sorts of areas, and uh, I think that prices will start to rise there, but we're a few years away from that, but that's the next stage of what happens when you look at that uh, pattern of demand as it develops.
1: Now, John, I understand you look at many, many data points, however, uh, the world of data also loves simplicity, and so... If you take a step back, and I'm not saying these are the ones that for sure make the biggest difference, but there may be some of your favourites in analysing uh, core differences and shifts of housing demands. What are your top three that you say, Arjun, these are my three favourite.
0: The three are, um, and they've changed because uh, the first two are always the the number of sales. And it's quite easy to look up the annual sales in a suburb now for houses or units, And if the number of sales is going up, that means that obviously demand is increasing. And if the number of sales is going down, it means that demand is decreasing. And the other one is the number of listings. So you look up realestate.com.au for a suburb and see how many houses or units are listed for sale. Just look at the gross number and see how that changes because if the number of listings is going down, that's another indicator that demand is going up and the supply is falling. And conversely, of course, if we go the other way, it means the opposite. But the third indicator is one that I, I never used to use, and it was because it was so unreliable, and that was time on market. Now, the the data that was available was called average time on market. And for data nerds like myself, I thought that doesn't work, because when you look at average time on market, let's say uh, somebody goes to an agent and they so you can you please sell our home, we, this is what we want for it, and then the agent fails to sell it, and so after three months uh, they go to another agent and say, right, can you try and sell it, time and market set goes back to zero, even though it's the same property that hasn't been sold over that time. Or another example might be that someone wants a ridiculous price for property and simply won't negotiate, won't sell for anything lower. And with that property being on the market maybe for a year or even longer, the average time on market blows out because the average is different to a median. That means that it's not really reliable. It never has been. But now the main data providers are using median time on market, which is the middle point, and it means that you can use the median time on market or days on market as a really good indicator of what's happening in a suburb. And to give you an example, firstly, how do you get that data? Well, you just simply go to realestate.com.au, look up your suburb. And then when you do to look up the number of properties for sale, you'll notice a, a girl with a pair of binoculars on the right and click on her and all this data unfolds. It's all free. And one of them is time on market. And you can then look at that and see how many days of you know, in that suburb, has been the median time on market. How do you use that? Well, if the median time on market is 15 days or less, which it is in many suburbs in Perth right now, that means you're looking at a really hot market. Properties are selling faster than hot cakes, and all the good ones have probably gone. And the buyers agents are in there buying everything because they can negotiate better with uh, real estate agents, and so the average investor hasn't got a hope. 15 days or less means it's a market that you really can't get into anymore. But what if it's, say, 120 days is the median time on market? That means that market is stressed. It's taking forever to sell properties. So when you look up a suburb, go to the little girl with uh, the binoculars, click on her and see what the median time on market is. And if it's under 15, don't go there. If it's 120 or more, don't go there either. But if it's around 30 to 60 days, that's perfect. It's a good balanced number of days to, you know, as a median to sell a property. What you then do, if you want to, you just track that every month and have a look and see if it's going up or down. Now, if it's going down, so it was 60 days, then it's 55, then 50, that means that the chances of price growth occurring in that suburb are very high indeed. But if the time on market is blowing out, it means, of course, that prices are probably going to fall as well. So a very simple indicator that anyone can use, and it's highly accurate. And they're really my three favorites, the sales, data, the listings, and time on market.
1: Lovely, John. This is really helpful, and no doubt some practical tips there as well. And they're amazing data. So it's something we truly believe in, in similar thoughts So you know, It's all about, can I bring it up in a sentence and can it make sense to someone? And if someone's going quicker to sell, not much for sale, more people are buying, tell me where that equals a declining market. I (laughs) I just can't see that come together, right? Could you imagine if someone puts their prices down, if it's faster, more people, less properties, it doesn't come together. So it's a great point you raise of these three data points. John, when it comes to your time, you've always been generous both here on this show and also to many aspiring property investors, whether it's their first time or they're more experienced, to really get the best out of property data. How can investors get to reach out to you, get to know about you a little bit more, and perhaps even have a chat just to learn more about what you do?
0: Well, one thing we do is we make available some of my time free of charge. So I love talking to investors. you know I've spoken with thousands over the years at events and boot camps and workshops and so on. and um, what we did during COVID we said let's offer free consultancies to people at 30 minutes of my time by telephone and that was really popular because people we couldn't actually physically meet and we've kept that going so if you'd like a free 30 minute telephone consultation with me I'm not selling anything I'm just going to answer your well, press you know the pressing questions you have about your own property or whether you should buy somewhere or sell or whatever I'm happy to, you know, share with uh, with you what I know. To get a thirty minute free consultation, you need to go to our website, which is lindermanreports.com.au. So linderman l i n d e m a n reports.com.au, and you'll see there the free consultation button. Click on that, and you can just lock in a time that suits you. And um, I very much hope to speak with you because there's a lot of information. We obviously haven't had time to cover everything here, Arjun, and when it comes to your own situation, everyone is different. So it's great if I can uh, speak to you personally.
1: Lovely, John. Well, thank you so much for your time and all you do for the Australian property investing community and and all your predictions to date. Uh, It's very, very excited to have you on this uh, call here and no doubt every property data lover that's listening to this is... um, you know, really enjoying some of the insights that you've put out. And of course, the state and dynamic of the market gives us a lot of confidence when moving forward. Uh, Thank you, my friend, and appreciate you jumping on the Property Nerd shop. It's been a
0: pleasure, Arjun. Thank you too.
1: The information featured in this podcast is general in nature and does not take into consideration your financial situation or individual needs and should not be relied upon. Before making any investment, insurance, tax, property or financial planning decision, you should consult a licensed professional who can advise whether your decision is appropriate for you. Guests appearing on this podcast may have a commercial relationship with the companies mentioned. Game over.